Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, and we want everybody to be able to follow along as we look at a passage in 1 Peter, as we've been doing a series in that book, and to help you follow along, if you need a Bible, these brothers have come forward with Bibles in hand, as they make their way back, just get their attention if you need a copy of God's Word, and it is marked at the passage that we'll be considering in 1 Peter chapter 3. One of the first Olympics that I can recall being really excited about was the 76 Summer Games in Montreal. I was 14, so you can do the math on that, I'm 51. And so I was old enough to appreciate what was happening, and it was also the bicentennial of our Declaration of Independence, and so patriotism was at a very high level. And it was a wonderful Olympics overall. It was the year that gymnast Nadia Comaneci set the standard of perfection, getting the first ever score of 10 and doing so more than once. And American athletes performed marvelously. It was the debut of boxer Sugar Ray Leonard, who won a gold medal. Bruce Jenner won the gold medal for the decathlon became known as the world's greatest athlete. Incredibly, he went on to even greater fame by marrying into the Kardashian family. (laughs) And we finished third in the gold medal count. Back in those days, we never finished first in the gold medal count because our amateur athletes, some of you know this, had to compete against the professional athletes of the Soviet Union who would always finish first and did that year. But second in gold medals in 76 was East Germany. And in those days, Germany was divided into two separate countries, communist East Germany, democratic West Germany. One of the most impressive teams from East Germany was the women's swim team. It was impressive in terms of their medal count, at least, but not so impressive to members of the U.S. women's swim team because they were sure that the East German women were taking steroids. Now, we've heard a lot about that in the last few years and applied to a lot of different sports, but in those days it was something new, it was unproven, and anyone who complained about it was considered a sore loser and a whiner. The loudest complaints came from the U.S. team's best swimmer, Shirley Babishoff. She was vilified in the media, including American media. She was called Surly Shirley and accused of being unsportsmanlike. The East German women swept nearly all the gold medals in swimming. And Babishov complained for years and almost no one would listen to her. And then in 1989, as you know, the Berlin Wall that divided East and West Germany came down. Germany was unified as one country and things began to change. The German government slowly began to release documents from those prior years. And documents that were released in just 2007 showed that, indeed, the East German government had directed a doping campaign for years, infecting nearly 10,000 athletes, most without their knowledge. The 76 women's swim team was among those who were on a steroid program. Now that the world knows that if the East Germans had been disqualified, Shirley Babishoff and her teammates would have won multiple gold medals. 
Her former coach said, if the record books were to remove the East German medals for that Olympics, surely would have been the toast of the town with five gold medals and one bronze. Instead, she got roasted. She was abhorred by the media, he said. After all the years of doubts and the scoffing and the ridicule, Surly Shirley was vindicated in time. The world now knows the truth, but still the books have not been balanced. She says this, Everyone should be compensated somewhat or at least acknowledged. Even our own Olympic committee should step up and have an event where they can invite those who are still alive and recognize them, perhaps with a commemorative medal, or at least say, we know this has been hard for you. They should at least acknowledge the women. Some people want to think that this issue is over, but from our side of it, the whole issue has been shoved under the carpet. I think it's sad. So many women deserve their medals. They were cheated out of their medals at the Olympics. We would like to get what we earned. We were going for the medals, not the cash. We were amateurs. We worked so hard. We earned it, and it was stolen right in front of everyone's face, and no one did anything about it. It was like watching a bank robbery where they just let the crooks go and then say, it's okay. Now, why do we go through all of that? You know, it's because one reason that the Christian life can be difficult is that it appears to be played on the opposing team's field and according to their rigged rules. And sometimes, no matter what we do, it seems the bad guys are winning. And all the while, as Christians, those who believe in a sovereign God, we know that there is a governing body, a higher authority who could, and we think should, intervene and intervene now to make it right. But instead, the game goes on, and the injustice is multiplied. We're not alone in thinking that way. The psalmist lamented as he wrote in Psalm 73, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he goes on to say, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And then the psalmist says this, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Peter, who wrote the letter that we've been considering these last many weeks and will again today, is writing to people who he's reminding that the contest we're in takes place in a foreign land under circumstances that are stacked against the Christian. Now, why is that? Well, we'll see some additional reasons later, but for now, one reason is that God is allowing people time to come to the winning team, His team. 
So why is it that the Lord delays? Why is it that he delays his coming? And in the meantime, we are in this fallen world playing, as it were, according to a fallen world's rules. One reason Scripture gives is that God is allowing time in his love and in his patience. In fact, Peter wrote a, a second letter, Second Peter. And in Second Peter chapter 3, he says this, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But then Peter says, that's what they say. But he goes on to explain this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. That is, He's not delaying because he cannot or will not make good on it. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And our passage today in 1 Peter 3 is in that context. It's a passage that is designed to encourage Christians in the midst of unjust suffering. Verse 18 of chapter 3 begins with the word for. Notice what it says. For Christ also suffered. And that word for then connects verse 18 and what follows with what goes before. And what goes before actually goes all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 12. So please take a look. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then from chapter 2 and verse 13, the next verse after that theme verse, chapter 2 and verse 13 and following begin to tell us how to live those good lives among the pagans. So what do those good lives look like? Chapter 2 and verse 13, it looks like submission as citizens to government, even evil government. It's a good word for us in this day. And then in chapter 2 and verse 18, it looks like those who submit to their bosses in the workplace, even crooked, harsh bosses, says Peter. What does it look like? It looks like chapter 3 and verse 1, wives playing their role within the home. And chapter 3 and verse 7, husbands playing their role within the home. And then you come to chapter 3 and verse 8. And you notice it says, finally. Now, when we studied that passage three weeks ago, we saw that it's not finally, as in the end of the book, there are still a couple more chapters. It's finally like when a preacher says, finally. It doesn't mean the end is really near. (laughs) What does that mean? Why does Peter say finally in chapter 3 and verse 8? Because it is the conclusion to this section. And after today, as we go through verse 22, the end of chapter 3, next week we will start in chapter 4. That will begin a new section. It begins with the word, therefore. And so chapter 3 and verse 8 draws conclusions now based upon the instruction to live such good lives among the pagans. And this is what these good lives look like as citizens and as employees and as domestic roles are being played in the home. And so it's finally chapter 3 and verse 8, as in the end of this section, and in concluding the teaching on living these good lives among the pagans, we're instructed in verse 9 of chapter 3, do not repay 
evil with evil, or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. You see, friends, because we are playing on someone else's turf for now, there will be times when we're mistreated. But even then, if we play according to rules that are generally accepted, as we saw two weeks ago, then things will generally go relatively well most of the time. And that's why verse 13 asks, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And then verse 14 says, but even if, and you remember two weeks ago if you were here, that's worded in such a way in Greek, the original language of your New Testament, that it's improbable, but it could happen. And even if it does, if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. So here's how you should live as citizens and employees and wives and husbands. And when you do, generally you'll be left alone, not harmed as a Christian. But there are times and there are places and circumstances when despite your best efforts and even because of your obedience to Jesus, you will suffer. And today's passage offers us comfort when that happens. We're going to see it in the outline that we provided, inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look at that. And together, let's ask God to help us then as we look at this passage. Our Father, once again, we come to you needy, needing your aid to understand, to receive, welcome, accept, and then apply your word so that we can glorify you with our lives. Lord, that's our desire and that's our end. And so we ask you to help us toward it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I say in the outline that you should have in front of you, We know we will win. So even though we're playing on somebody else's field, we know we'll win. Why why do we know this? Because others have won. We know that we're going to win because others have won. And the passage that we're looking at in verses 18 through 22 tells us in verse 20, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. So much of what Peter has to say is centered around making analogies and using illustrations from the life and circumstances of Noah. In fact, he does the same thing in his second letter as as well. What is it about Noah's life that compares to, is parallel with, the kinds of things that we will experience? Well, I say in your outline, one is this that in Noah's time he was, they were righteous, though surrounded by wickedness. Righteous, though surrounded by wickedness. In fact, the Bible refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. The Bible says, God protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. Now, who are those seven others? There's Noah and his wife, their three sons and their three wives, eight people in, in all. And they were righteous despite the wickedness around them, particularly Noah. And how wicked was what was going on in the society around them? Genesis chapter 6 tells us why it was that God determined to end the world, to destroy the world, save these eight people by means of a flood. 
and have Noah build an ark. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You know, friends, as bad as it is now, and it is, it can be, and the Bible predicts will be in the future, much worse. The common grace of God restrains the effects of evil in the lives of men and women. And thanks be to God, He does. Because if He did not, then this planet would be uninhabitable. The Bible says that there is coming a time of trouble such as has never been seen on the earth. The Bible calls it the time of the great tribulation. And that will be a time when God removes the restraining effects of his common grace from earth. I believe that includes removing Christians and the Holy Spirit that resides in Christians from the earth as well. And as then a result, you don't have the, re- you don't have the restraining effect of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians. You have corrupt government from the top down and only evil continually. So we should have no illusions about the sin of which we are capable and certainly those who do not have the restraining effect of God's Spirit because they do not have a relationship with God through Jesus, the evil of which we are capable. They were righteous. And when I say they, I don't mean just Noah. I'm referring to now those in Hebrews chapter 11 that the Bible speaks of who by faith lived for God against all odds and in difficult circumstances and often surrounded by great wickedness. Noah being just one example as a preacher of righteousness. And so we will win because others have won. And they won as they were righteous through, though they were surrounded by wickedness. And then secondly in your outline, they were courageous, though ridiculed. Courageous, though ridiculed. This preacher of righteousness that Noah is called. For how long did he preach? (laughs) The end is near. A flood is coming. I'm building safety in an ark for you. Well, the Bible tells us he did that for 120 years. Again, Genesis chapter 6. God said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. And then God introduces us to Noah and his instructions to Noah to build this ark. And God gives great specificity to the way this ark is to be constructed. And for 120 years, during this time that God has given, patiently allowing people to come to Him in the safety of the ark, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As all of that is going on, can you picture the scene? As this preacher of righteousness, Noah, says rain is coming. Well, what would that be? And I'm building a big boat for us all to get in. Can you imagine the ridicule? that Noah would have suffered. There's a recorded in Scripture an episode, a very sorry episode, sad episode, in the life of Noah, of, of drunkenness. Just as an aside, I just like to kick this dog every time I get a chance. You know, friends, you really ought to stay away from alcohol. And there are too many Christians who think that's an okay thing to do. And I'm just warning you as your pastor 
for your sake, for the sake of your children, if you have them, you should stay away from alcohol. And Noah failed to do that in one episode. He had this period of drunkenness. He's involved in 120 years of building the ark, and one pastor said, you know, no wonder he went to drinking. He was involved in a 120-year building program. And as somebody who's involved in a building program, I'm just taking my own advice. So what does it mean when the Bible tells us in this difficult verse on first blush, in verse number 19, verses 18 and 19, that Christ went and preached. Noah preached, but it appears that it's saying Christ went and preached to someone as well. Notice verse 18 in your Bible. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then verse 19 says in the NIV, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Yikes, what is that? Because here the NIV is suggesting, as it puts the chronology together, that Jesus, after his resurrection, then goes somewhere and preaches to spirits who are imprisoned. And so is that, is that what happened? Well, it's not what happened, I'm convinced. And the NIV has not helped us in the way it has laid this out. Sometimes you get differences in translation. We use the NIV because it's a very good and helpful translation. But sometimes you have to look very carefully. And on the screen, we have the New American Standard Bible translation of this passage, which actually helps clarify who it is that's doing the proclamation and when. So notice what what it says. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, that is Jesus, having been put to death in his body, but made alive in the spirit. Now notice, in which. So it is through the spirit that made Jesus alive now that this preaching takes place. He was made alive in the Spirit, in which now, in the Spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits that are now in prison. So what is that about? The preaching is actually taking place through Noah. The proclamation is from Noah, the preacher of righteousness. And through God's Spirit, it is the Spirit of Christ who is speaking through Noah to warn those at his time, those people who disobeyed and are thus now imprisoned. Notice, if you'll just turn back in 1 Peter to chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Peter said as much that it was the Spirit of Christ who was actually speaking through the prophets who came before. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, 
trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And so here in chapter 3 now, as the New American Standard makes clearer for us, it is the Spirit by which Jesus' body was made alive now. Jesus' Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is speaking through Noah. He speaks to those who were disobedient at the time in that 120-year period where he is warning and he is offering, and they are disobedient. And as a result, they are now imprisoned. So the idea that Jesus went somewhere and preached to spirits after his resurrection is not something that I believe the Bible teaches, although it's been around for since the Apostles' Creed. You guys know that the Apostles' Creed, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was raised, descended into, you remember? Descended into hell, says the Apostles' Creed. And it comes from this passage. And so we will win because others have won. And among those others who have won, Peter uses as an illustration Noah. And Noah, like the others who have gone before us and who have walked with the Lord, were righteous, though they were surrounded by wickedness, courageous, though they were ridiculed. And then I say in your outline this as well. We will win, yes, because others have won. But we will win, secondly and most importantly, because Jesus has won. You see, despite the fact that we are playing on somebody else's field, according to someone else's rules, we will win because Jesus has won. Now, how is Jesus then, our forerunner, our example, in winning in this battle, in this contest that is taking place according to the rules of others and in a foreign land, as it were? Well, I have for you three ways. The first is Jesus suffered unjustly. Verse number 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus suffered unjustly because Jesus had done no wrong. Jesus is the righteous one. As a matter of fact, the word righteous means to meet a standard, in this case to meet God's perfect standard. And it is only Jesus who has met that standard. Only Jesus lived the perfect life that we were made by God to live, but because of our sin have all failed to live. Jesus lived that life, therefore he met God the Father's standard, therefore he was righteous, though all of us are unrighteous. And despite the fact that he alone met the standard, he alone is righteous, he suffered and was crucified. Jesus suffered unjustly. Jesus died the death that we deserved, but certainly not that he deserved. He died in his body. It was a real death in his human life on earth. He died for sins because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and death is the only payment for sin. Verse 18 tells us it was once for all time in his death, never needing to be repeated, thanks be to God such as the sacrifices that pointed to the coming death of the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, who is Jesus. Those had to be repeated 
Year after, year after year, Jesus' sacrifice was once for all time. He does not continually die for sin. When we observe communion next month, on November 17th, we will not be re-crucifying Jesus. There is no re-crucifixion of Jesus. When we, thanks be to God, expand this room, and we have architecture in here such that we have a platform, and we have a different pulpit, and it looks a little more churchy, there will still never be an altar in here. Do you all know why? Because an altar is where sacrifice occurs. And the sacrifice has been made one time for all by Jesus. And so we sometimes be, talk about being left at the altar or coming forward to the altar or having altar calls. But let us use our terminology carefully and biblically. The sacrifice, the, only, the closest thing to an altar we will ever have is a cross. Because there the once for all sacrifice has been made by Jesus. And it was an unjust death because he met the standard, because he was righteous, because he was perfect. And it was a substitutionary death because it was for the unjust, though he was just, absolutely righteous. And it was a satisfactory death in that it brought us to God, according to verse 18. Friends, the heart of the good news, the gospel, is that Christ suffered unjustly and died so that we might be reconciled as sinners to God. We're sometimes tempted to think that our suffering is more than we can bear, but we need to remember what Christ took from us by suffering for us. And so we will win because Jesus has won. And in Jesus winning, He has made it possible to bring us to God, for us to have a relationship with God. He suffered unjustly, but for an ultimately eternal cause. Secondly, in your outline, he not only suffered unjustly, but he rose victoriously. Jesus rose victoriously. Verse 21. This water, this water of the flood, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and who is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, you all are loving it that this passage has two of the most notoriously difficult sections in it in all of the New Testament. I mentioned that to you last week. And one of those is that idea of Jesus going to preach to spirits in, in prison. We've talked about that. But now here's this, this section in verses, uh, beginning in verse 21 that suggests that baptism is somehow involved in our salvation. And yet, you have heard me say, and you have come to believe, I believe most of you, that that is indeed not the case. That salvation is not, does not include baptism, but rather faith, believing in Jesus and what he has done. So how is that to be harmonized with a passage, a passage like this? Well, the water of Noah's flood was God's judgment upon people. So let's see now how the parallel takes place in context. 
the water was sent by God as judgment upon people and their sin. And the water of baptism symbolizes judgment on Jesus in his death. Remember how we are baptized? The Bible, in fact, the word baptized means to immerse, literally means to immerse. And all of you that have been baptized here have been baptized by being immersed. And you are immersed to picture something, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, right? That death in, in that water symbolizes then the judgment on Jesus in his death. As a matter of fact, Jesus would refer often to the judgment that was coming in his death on the cross, the judgment of God upon sin that he was taking upon himself, though he knew no sin, he became sin for us. And he would refer to that as this baptism that I must be baptized with, Jesus would say. And so the water in Noah's time was judgment upon people. And now the water of baptism symbolizes, says Peter in verse 21, this water symbolizes baptism. That is now judgment upon sin that was carried out on the cross of Jesus on our behalf. Peter goes on to say, it is not, verse 21, the removal of dirt from the body. When he says it's not the removal of dirt, here's what he's telling us. The baptism is not a mechanical thing. That you just go into the water and you're, and you're clean like you would if you were taking a bath. That's not what this is. It's actually symbolizing something much more important and to which we are attached. It is rather, verse 21, the pledge of a clear conscience toward, toward God. That is commitment to follow in the new life now that baptism symbolizes because of Jesus' resurrection. And so, in his death, judgment upon sin is symbolized in the water of baptism as we die with Christ. And then we are raised to new life, committing to follow him. And we pledge that toward God in our baptism. And that's why Romans chapter 6 says this. All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Peter agrees with absolutely. And it could not be. And I just want to go through this because it's important for us to understand if we're going to be gospel-believing people, good news-believing people, that we understand that the good news does not and could not include works that are done by us, including baptism. Now, why do I say that? Well, the Bible is very clear. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now what those who believe that baptism is involved in our salvation do is this. They say it is true that the Bible teaches that there are no works involved in our salvation. But this is what they do, I'm not making this up. I looked it up in preparation for this. They say, but baptism is not a work. Now, you just think about that. I mean, you've got to go to the river. In our case, when we were renting before we moved in here, we'd go to the pool, change your clothes, get in, 
consent to getting dunked. I consent to bringing you back up. We go through, we go through all of that, and you're going to tell me that's not a work that you do. And yet, there are churches all over this country who believe that and say that. I don't mean to be unkind, but this is an important issue, friends, to put it mildly. There is a large church just across Fort Street from us who believes that very thing. Baptism is not a work, say they. Well, how do you deal with this? The Bible contrasts faith and work. In other words, that which is not belief, that's what faith is in the New Testament, then is something we do as a work. James chapter 2, faith, if not accompanied by works, is dead. So notice there's faith and then the works follow the faith. And Ephesians chapter 2 said it is by grace you are saved through what? Faith. Not by what? Works. And if baptism were part of salvation and the good news, then how could the great Apostle Paul say as he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now baptism is extremely important because it is the, it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It is a commitment to a new way of life because Jesus has been raised and has now given us this new life. It is a commandment of Jesus that all those who come to him believing who he is and what he did follow him in obedience and baptism symbolizing his death and his burial and his resurrection. It's extremely important throughout Scripture. But it is not part of what gets you to heaven. And Peter is simply making the analogy of the judgment of the water of the flood and the judgment symbolized in the water of baptism because it represents the death of Jesus and God's judgment on sin that he bore for us. We know we will win because Jesus has won. Jesus suffered unjustly, as we will sometimes. But Jesus rose victoriously, according to verse 21. Baptism saves you, notice the end of verse 21, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's that resurrection and Jesus' victory now over sin, having died the just for the unjust on the cross. God the Father accepted His sacrifice on our behalf, and now He is victorious. Verse 22, He is at the right hand of God the Father, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Jesus rose victoriously, and lastly in your outline, Jesus saved us, thanks be to God, graciously. Again, verse number 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And that is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. The exchange of our sin placed upon the one who had no sin. The exchange of his perfect righteousness given to those who had no righteousness. Wow. And as a result, we are brought to God and reconciled to God. That's the good news. Now in all of this, in all of this suffering and playing on someone else's field and looking like we are not going to come out on the other side victorious, 
It's natural for each of us to ask, as the psalmist did in Psalm 73, as probably all of us have asked at one time or another, whether, whether or not there could have been some other way. Couldn't God have accomplished this all some other way? But whatever the unfathomable counsels and purposes behind the course of history that God has ordained, hear this, friends. When you look at the cross of Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous who died to bring us to God, you cannot doubt that what God does for us is motivated by His love and His absolute commitment to our joy and future glory. Our suffering, despite its painfulness, is also filled with purpose and with usefulness. It is not empty. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is God has allowed into your life, just suffering or unjust suffering, it is with purpose and usefulness. Greg was a young assistant college professor whose wife left him for another man. She took their two young children with them. Greg faced years of legal expense and fights over custody of the children. Eventually, he won custody, but then he found himself a single parent with a full-time, poor-paying job. He had almost no hope of finishing the book on which his academic career depended, and he worried about the mental health of his children. A counselor that Greg had been visiting came and visited him several months later after all this went down, and he found that many people had rallied around Greg. His church helped them with meals and child care and strong emotional and spiritual support. Parents sold their, his parents sold their, their home out west so that they could move closer to him and be of, of help to him in this situation. And Greg said this, You know, in the middle of many operas, there's a crucial point, an aria, a sad and moving solo in which the main character turns sorrow into something beautiful. And he said, this is my moment to sing the aria. I don't want to. I don't want to have this chance, but it's here now. And what am I going to do about it? Am I going to rise to the occasion? This counselor who visited him and heard him say that, despite everything that had happened to him, was moved and amazed. And he says, with the help of family, friends, and his deep religious faith, he rebuilt his life. He finished his book. Two years later, he found a better job. He now experiences more joy from each day with his children than he did before the crisis. Greg says it changed his perspective on what matters in life. Now, let me just stop and say, there's not always a happy ending in this life. And I don't mean to suggest that. But you you hear me and hear me well. We will win because for the Christian, there is always a happy ending either in this life or in the next. Because others have won. And Jesus has won. And we will win as well. God is so committed, friends, to defeating evil, so committed to defeating it, that He's ready to help us use it for good, even in our individual lives right now. Hear this. Post-traumatic stress can, by the grace of God, and is intended by the grace of God, to be post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic stress can be, and is intended by God, in His grace, to be post-traumatic growth. And so I say in your outline, the take-home truth, we can be confident. Even while suffering, 
because Jesus has overcome. Now that overcoming is only for those who have been reconciled to God through the death and life of Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God the Father. And so I ask everyone here, have you come to God through Jesus? We're going to pray in just a moment, but we offer you opportunity to do that. He offers the gift of himself and his life and his sacrificial death to you. And you come to him with the empty hands of faith. You bring nothing to him but your sin. And you come to him with your sin. And he bore your sin on the cross. And you acknowledge to him, as we say on the screen, that you are a sinner. You recognize that Jesus died for your sin and that death was acceptable to God the Father because he lived a perfect life. And you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you with my life. That's what repent means. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that by praying from your heart to God. When we bow in this sacred moment, you can come to the cross of Jesus and have the death and life that he lived and died on your behalf, applied to you personally right now. All of your sins forgiven, and all of them covered by the blood of Jesus, past, present, and future. Thanks be to God. And so when we bow together, those of us that have done that, let us thank God that Jesus has redeemed us individually, that Jesus is redeeming his world corporately, and that everything that happens in our lives he is using toward that end. And those of you that have not come to Jesus, accept his invitation now. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the pages of your word and see there how you use everything that happens in our lives, in this chaotic-looking world from our limited perspective, and all of its injustice, and all of its difficulty, and all of its unknown, you take all of it and are in control of all of it, and you use it all for the good purpose of bringing glory to yourself, spreading your fame in your world, stealing your people for the next phase, building our, our character, causing us to become closer to the people that you have placed in our lives when we are faced with adversity. There are all sorts of these things that you accomplish through the suffering that you allow in our lives. Lord, help us to see that nothing is happening today that you have not planned for our good and your glory. And Lord, I pray that there are some right in this room now who are receiving the gift of Jesus and his life and his death on their behalf. I pray that your spirit is moving upon their hearts to draw them to yourself, that they are accepting the free gift of salvation that is offered through and because of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for what you are doing in our lives for this time together and for those that you are saving for your namesake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.